We are Awakened Church in Bonesse, and this is our podcast. Welcome. All right. <clears throat> um, it's interesting, uh, sometimes just reading the Bible in a church, like, I, I'm like, okay, I know we're, we're like evangelical, so we like value the Bible a lot, but there's a lot of stuff in it that is scary and not safe for kids, and it's like 18A, and it's just a weird thing as a pastor, and preparing this sermon and getting into Daniel, and I'm like, oh, I hope there's kids' church today. <laughs> but that's okay. And I love that just the way it all worked out is that we're here on this text today, uh, ahead of Halloween, and I know that's a time of year where no matter how much you've like deconstructed or like gone to therapy, there's still like a weird feeling about Halloween sometimes. And so I appreciate that even that weird feeling about Halloween is like a ghost. And so I'm excited for the text today and for our church. So the book of Daniel, I'm not sure if you've if you've read it in adulthood, yeah, you might have only read the first six chapters. Because the first six chapters, there's 12 chapters in Daniel, but the first six chapters are filled with these amazing stories that are very easy to understand, for the most part. But then suddenly in chapter 7, the style changes completely, and the writing is very confusing and very different. And sometimes I think we don't know how to read the Bible in our bodies and in a trauma-informed way, so when it gets confusing, we assume it's our fault and we check out. Instead of being like, maybe it's supposed to be confusing and there's nothing wrong with you and that's exactly what you were supposed to feel. And so all of a sudden it switches. And, and, and so it's like there's two entirely different genres of literature side by side within the same narrative framework. It would be like going to a movie theater for a romantic comedy that you've been super excited about on a date. In the last five minutes, it becomes a zombie horror movie. You would be so confused. Like, you would be like, I don't, who was the intended audience of this film? Like, who, who, like, like it, that's the feeling. It's like it's two different types of movies. You're not going to bring someone to the zombie horror movie, the same person that you might bring to the rom-com. And so you kind of get this thing happening, Daniel. But I think it's normal to feel confused and unsure. And to make things even more interesting, we missed this on the English, but the book of Daniel is written in both Hebrew and Aramaic. And it's Hebrew all the way until this point in chapter 2, and then it switches to Aramaic. And it will do that until the end of chapter 8, and then it will switch back to Hebrew. And it's very interesting because it's like um, a, a people group whose languages have been lost. Um, so it would be like a Blackfoot elder speaking in Blackfoot to these children aware of the sorrow that comes from knowing that the children don't fully understand what he's saying. And then two chapters in, he starts speaking in English, and the children light up because they understand and the sorrow that would be involved in that. So there's a language thing that happens about the language of the colonizer and the language of the colonized. And so, Daniel, we can assume, uh, theorize, that it's intentionally trying to unsettle and disrupt. So observe yourself observing the story is a kind of the advice, I think, here. So we're going to open up right into Daniel chapter 7, the first eight verses, and then you'll be like, oh, that's what she's talking about. Okay, so it goes like this. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream. I, Daniel, saw in my vision by night the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea. You can't not read it this way. I'm sorry. You're, you're officially children, and I am the storyteller. Four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and he had eagle's wings. Then I watched. Its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human being. And a human mind was given to it. Another beast appeared, a second one, that looked like a bear. 
It was raised up on one side, and it had three tusks in its mouth among its teeth, and was told, Arise, devour many bodies. After this I watched, another appeared, like a leopard. The beast had four wings of a bird on its back, and four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the visions by night a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, and it was devouring, breaking in pieces, and stamping what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that preceded it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns when another horn appeared, a little one coming up among them. To make room for it, three of the earlier horns were plucked up by the roots, and there were eyes like human eyes in the horn, and a mouth speaking arrogantly. Welcome to the horror show. Like, this is a creepy story. This is terrifying. This is a, a, a nightmare. You have a nightmare, a night terror. It's a nightmare. And um, it, it's really profound what's happening here. And you can imagine how sometimes people um, in certain contexts could be confused and get weird ideas about this. But um, here, here's the thing. Apocalyptic literature, that's what this is called, apocalyptic, which means uh, literature that unveils the truth. Like It's like literature that feels like a dream, which is meant to wake you up from the dream. It's an unveiling kind of genre. And apocalyptic literature became a very popular way of writing um, in what's called Second Temple Judaism. So if you've never had me as your professor, and don't worry, we won't go off there, but essentially that's the, the period between the Old and the New Testament. So from like 300 years before Jesus until about one, uh, less than 100 years after, um, they had a, their second temple, but Shortly after Jesus, the Romans destroyed the temple, and so that's the end of the second temple. So that's the second temple period. Uh, and this is when it, where apocalyptic literature came from, was from this time. So apocalyptic literature, therefore, belongs to an oppressed class in ancient society. The Jewish people who wrote this type of literature and valued this type of literature had been oppressed and dominated by the Babylonians, the Persians, Alexander the Great, and the uh, Macedonians, the Greeks, the Seleucids, the Romans. The people who produced this type of literature were a traumatized people group with personal as well as collective and ecological trauma. They would have suffered loss like we would not believe. They would suffer terror, displacement, and the destruction of beloved homelands. They would be people who survived sexual terror, forced assimilation, and cultural genocide. And so I have to step back before I step into the apocalyptic world and realize I might not be the intended audience. It makes sense that these images would come from a mind and a body that is in a state of terror and disintegration. So apocalyptic literature, as you can guess, is known for strange language. Uh, and it's really known for depicting supernatural hybrid creatures, creatures that are made up of different parts, like a lion with wings, or an eagle with wings, or a bear with horns that have eyes. It's filled with very militaristic language, you know, devour, destroy. However, there's very rarely an actual like context. The militaristic language is cast in cosmic terms where it's like an ultimate good fighting an ultimate evil. And you'll find if you read uh, other apocalyptic literature in the Bible, I'll show you two examples. But there are symbols and metaphors and archetypes from all sorts of different Mesopotamian cultures. There are ancient symbols of political powers. Like you can imagine in the United States, if I started telling you a story about a donkey and an elephant, and the elephant spoke arrogantly and had horns, and the donkey 
didn't know what was going on. You would know, we're not talking about an elephant and a donkey, right? Because those are some political symbols. So you, you know that's going to be a part of it there. But it, so, so you can imagine if you don't know all those political symbols or ancient symbols, then apocalyptic literature would be very difficult to understand. Westerners have not done a good job with it, unless there's an, a U.S. election happening and there's a woman running for office. And then the book of Revelation is, we all know exactly what it's about. Uh, then we forget it for four more years. However, apocalyptic literature is all over the Bible. Daniel 7 to 12 is probably the biggest chunk in the Old Testament where apocalyptic scholars go to study. But you can find this kind of writing in Isaiah, Zechariah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and in the New Testament, in Mark and Revelation, because these are the, the documents uh, that the text written, or the stories told, I should say, by people living in that time in history. So check this one out. Um, here's an example from Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is also taken captive into Babylon. So you can imagine Ezekiel has experienced exactly what Daniel would have experienced. They're writing in the same time in history, about the same time in history. And Ezekiel says, as I looked, he's, he's describing his vision too. He says, a stormy wind came out of the north, a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually. And in the middle of the fire, something like gleaming amber. And in the middle of it was something like four living creatures. This was their appearance. They were of human form. Each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings. Thus, their wings touched one another. Each of them moved straight ahead without turning as they moved. As for the appearance of their faces, the four had the face of a human being, the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, and the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. Ah, we're describing hybrid creatures. This is apocalyptic literature. And then just to remind you that we're still in North America in 2023, a Revelation example. And in front of the throne, there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature with a face like a human, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside, and day and night without ceasing, they sing... And I think when we like actually visualize this creature, it's not like, holy, holy, holy. You know, it's like, it sounds like there's probably like kind of, I won't try and be creepy, but you can. They sing, holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And so these are the, the stories, the writings. So, so the idea behind this genre is to unveil what's real using fantastic and cosmic characters. And, and so this makes sense. Imagine the book of Revelation. You're living under Roman oppression, Roman war, like constant trauma and, and just threat of death, uh, threat of suffering. So what's easier? To say, okay, Rome is a complex political ideology sustained by complex international trade relations and economic advantages driven by the correlated realities of warfare, technological innovation, and the value of one's national currency. But it's okay. We can resist. That doesn't strike an imagination in anyone. But if I said there's a seven-headed dragon with teeth bigger than swords, same feeling, <laughs> same sense of there's no way we stand a chance. But when you frame the story that way, 
uh, it, it allows our minds and our bodies to sort of settle and interact and kind of hold the realities of our suffering. And we do this because story is very powerful. Having no ability to tell your own story, having no ability to resist the stories being told about you is pain, is true pain. And so storytelling can be a form of violence, but storytelling can also be revolutionary. If you want to change the world, I've heard it said, you must change the story. Stories are who we are and how we build the world. So apocalyptic literature represents the need for a subjugated people to take their own bodies back and write their own story. So you could say um, that apocalyptic literature is a type of horror, if it's in horror. Like if any of you are film buffs, you might love murder mysteries, but not horror. Like, like this is the horror. Like there's different genres in the Bible. There's poetry and narrative and saga and bylaw and horror. And so when we zoom out and you think about it that way, we notice uh, stories about hybrid beasts and monsters are a feature of horror uh, that exists all around the world in cultures all around the world, all throughout history. There's an English professor who in the 90s, his name's Jeremy Jerome Coam, and he established what's called the monster theory, where he started to look at how monsters function in cultures and stories around the world. Who are the people groups who have these fantastic stories about monsters? What do the monsters do in the stories? And then this is fantastic book. I've been learning a lot these last couple of weeks about monster theory. And the idea is that a monster, the monster in the story, is a metaphor for the cultural body that beasts and monsters act as symbolic expressions of cultural unease that pervade a society and shape its collective behavior. So for example, I think I have a few pictures here. Here's a sphinx. It's a hybrid, massive animal. It's an ancient monster. What about, next one? A minotaur. Half man, cow, cow's feet, terrifying. A hybrid creature. Centaur, same thing, terrifying. Even the mermaid, like I, I was listening to a Little Mermaid podcast, thank you, Anna. Um, and like mermaids in their original like mythological setting were a form of hybrid monster, half human, ha half woman, half fish. Next, look at this. This is the monster description in Ezekiel of the, the eyes of the seraphim or the cherubim. Like um, we have to be careful not to be like the monsters represent evil and the beautiful things represent good because the Bible does not fit in that dualism at all. The crucified Christ doesn't make it on a cover of a Vogue magazine. And finally, the dragon. A dragon is a monster that is not real, you know, like this kind of fire-breathing winged lizard. <laughs> Real, very, very real. Real in so many different ways. And I will never try and tell your story for you, so forgive me for saying that. But this is a theme, obviously, that shows up a lot in apocalyptic literature in the Bible and stories we still tell today and stories that we encounter all around. Um, so what, the idea is that monster theory helps, uh, monster theory says that monsters actually help us process trauma because they represent experiences we've had that transgress our innate sense of right and wrong. Yeah, I was showing a werewolf, vampire, zombie. These are all hybrid monsters that we still create in our context today. It's just a creature that's ha alive but dead or like a werewolf, half man, half wolf. And then I thought um, a creature, a monster that we are all collectively afraid of is this half human, half robot monster that um, has entered our imagination since the turn of our millennium. So the idea is that these monsters help us process trauma because these monsters transgress the boundary, they break the dualism. And so they, they represent experiences we've had that transgress our innate sense of right and wrong, good and bad, fair and unfair. These monsters help us escape the maze of dualism and false binaries. 
It's easier to imagine your complex situation as a complex creature that I could slay. Um, so a very good, great example of this, any parents in the room, um, you might uh, this, you might be like, oh yeah, great example. My daughter goes to Bowcroft here in Bowness, and they have fire drills, like we all had when we were kids, but they also have lockdown drills to practice what to do if an active shooter comes in the school. They do this. But they can't say to children, a man might come in here with a gun. Like they can't, that's way too complex that will mess the children up in their understanding of safety. So you know what they do at Bowcroft? They say, guys, I want you to imagine a tiger has escaped from the zoo. And he's very dangerous, and he's very powerful, but he's afraid. And um, so what we're going to do is get as quiet as possible, and we're all going to hide under our desks and wait until the police come and help the tiger get back to the zoo. And this is the, the script, and the children love it. They love it. They're like, yeah, oh, this is so fun. Like, there's a tiger in the school, and we just close the door and be really quiet, and we'll be okay. Then we did it. We took the complex, traumatic fact of danger and risk, and we made it into a scary tiger, so that the children could process what's happening. We do this, it's profound. And with, without the tiger, we would not be able to protect the children in, in a way that made sense to them, so it's profound. And this blows my mind. This has actually probably changed how I will read books and watch movies and think of people who like horror, looking at a few of you here, and um, change how I read the Bible for the rest of my life, I think, because what I've noticed, and I want, this is where I'm excited about um, the book of Daniel, there are, there are kind of two genres of monster that cultures create, and that are even in the Bible, two, two types of monster. One type of monster that evokes feelings of terror, but another type of monster that evokes both feelings of terror and disgust. It's a different kind of monster. You're not like, oh, that's disgusting, we should kill it. You're like, that's terrifying, what's going to happen? But oppressed social groups, it seems, are more likely to create monsters that evoke feelings of terror in their stories, whereas dominating people groups are more likely to create monsters that evoke feelings of disgust. For example, are you ready? The Jim Crow era, in the civil rights movement in the United States, they would make caricatures of black people presented as monstrous, presented as not human and something to be feared, and this was like a type of propaganda and say these people are monsters and that's why we need to be afraid of them. But they would also sometimes be presented in ways that evoked feelings of disgust. I put the Peter Pan um, depiction of, of the indigenous people. It does it too, but I have another slide. Um, and then on the right, there's just a piece of political propaganda from Nazi Germany depicting Jewish people as rats, which is not only terror, but also disgust. This was art from the early 1800s that a famous artist painted to depict uh, the indigenous people here. And so they have to be presented as kind of monstrous to evoke fear, but also a sense of disgust. And that we do this culturally, or dominating groups have to do this to subjugated groups. They have to make a monster out of them. Um, we saw this happen, I saw this happen in my lifetime around Muslim people. After 9-11, Muslim people um, in my childish imagination were very scary people. It was just, they were scary because of the stories that had been told about them. And then we know this happens to disabled people, people born with disabilities. It's like, it's changing, fortunately, but throughout a lot of human history, we, we just without knowing, yeah, Hunchback of Notre Dame felt like an example of how people born with disabilities can be um, treated like monsters. And we know that queer people experience this. I was trying to find like a way to depict this, and I think I nailed it. So in the next slide, it's just a survey that you have to fill out all the time in real life. And essentially it's, are you a human or a monster? 
are you a man, a woman, or other? And it's like this way that we're, and then I think I got, you know, a lot of fears about queer people or fears about people who defy gender norms. And um, you have to dehumanize and make someone into a monster in order to justify ignoring them. So the monstrous caricatures of disempowered people send a powerful message that evokes fear and disgust. Because it's easier to erase a creature that you think is disgusting, like a rat or a raccoon, than it is to erase your neighbor and his children. So the dominating group needs a story. If all trans women are predators, then we can justify their erasure. So that's the story. If all people trying to cross the US border from the south are rapists and drug dealers, then we can justify their erasure and put their children in cages made for animals. If the Babylonians believed the Hebrews were less than, they could justify their erasure, either by means of genocide, oppressive debt, or forced assimilation, kill the Hebrew, save the man, so to speak. Or as John A. MacDonald said, in our Canadian context regarding the creation of the Indian Act, he said, kill the Indian, save the man. And what was meant by that is actually uh, quite problematic on many levels, because essentially what um, he's saying is indigenous men are not inherently men. They're not. We need to kill the, the thing, the creature, the beast, and save the man. So it, it just begins, it, it happened so naturally. He wanted to kill the Indian, is the phrase, to save the white man within, to awaken or disciple the white man out. And so in the same way, the Babylonians believed that all truly good humans were those who behaved Babylonian and those who performed the Babylonian story. And anyone whose innate Babylonian virtue could not be summoned would be labeled disgusting and monstrous and then thrown into a fiery furnace like garbage or to a lion's den like a platter of raw meat. And so Daniel and all of the Hebrew people in this context would have been made into monsters by their oppressors in order to justify destroying them. On the cross in Matthew and Mark, Jesus quotes Psalm 22 because on the cross, Jesus enters into that shame of being turned into a monster that Rome turns Jesus into a monster. He shares it. On the cross, he quotes Psalm 22, and if you read just the first six verses, he's saying, they have made me into a monster. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the cries of people who've been made into monsters. Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Yet you are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our ancestors trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm. It's not a human, not a man. I'm a worm. I've been made into a worm. I am a worm and not a human, scorned by others and despised by the people. And this is what crucified Jesus cries out on the cross. Jesus who died naked and ashamed, with a crown on his head and a sign that said, King of the Jews. They led Jesus out of the city in an anti-processional, meaning um, he didn't get to enter the city like a victorious king. He was led out of the city to Calvary like a defeated animal. And so uh, his shame becomes the shame of all the Jewish people. It's the shame of Daniel. It's the shame of all subjugated peoples. It's the shame of all humiliated people, all traumatized people, all shamed people. You see, the cross is how Rome created monsters displaying broken and brutalized bodies as a way of disgusting and terrifying the people. It would be a terrifying place. You would not bring your children to see the crucified bodies. And it's like, this is not a human body. This is a monster to be feared. And this is collective trauma. 
to be dehumanized, to be treated and responded to with disgust, and to be treated as a threat to society is trauma. And trauma is a tricky passenger to carry around in this body because trauma transgresses the boundaries between good and bad and right and wrong and fair and unfair and causes deep confusion and a deep sense of being unsafe. Trauma teaches you to doubt yourself. Trauma teaches you to hate yourself and hide parts of yourself and to look for others for assurance that you're okay, that you're not a monster. But if you can't trust yourself, it's really hard to get out of the loop, right? Can we nod like anyone else in therapy, right? Like it's hard to get out of it because you, you convince yourself there's a split. You can't, it's, it's a story going over and over and over in your mind. It's a story that plays in your dreams and you can't get out of it. And so it turns out a tool that helps people sometimes get out of the loop is to use metaphor and symbolism so that they could see their own story through a simpler lens. So before we can even begin to tell our own story, which is part of like what trauma recovery is, right? Is tell the true story. Before you can do that, you have to get out of the loop so we can create a monster. And the story helps us see that this thing that I can't explain that happened that doesn't fit a category, it's kind of not all bad, but it's pretty bad, but it was someone I trusted and all these transgressions of all these binaries in my mind is the experience. And it looks like a minotaur. Get it? Like, do you see it? It's brilliant. Okay. So sometimes we need a bigger monster, a bigger and scarier monster who could come and defeat the real monster. So I'm just going to show you a few verses in Hosea, and I'm not going to go forever. We are going to come to the communion table in a moment here. But here's a text in Hosea you might like. They use this monster imagery to console traumatized people. God says, I will become like a lion to them, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. And I will tear open the covering of their hearts and I will devour them like a lion as a wild animal would mangle them. That sounds like not a loving portrayal of God. But if I'm experiencing trauma in my body and I need to know that someone is going to come and help me out, it's not going to be like a baby on Mary's lap. It's going to be a lion. And I need that lion to come now and set things right. The next example... In Jeremiah, he says, therefore, a lion from the forest shall kill them. A wolf from the desert shall destroy them. A leopard is watching against their cities. Everyone who goes out of them shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many. Their faithlessness is great. And again, you could read that and be like, wow, the God of the Old Testament is terrifying. I'm like, yes, we call on the terrifying God when we're standing face to face with a dragon. I need terrifying God to save me and get me out of the loop. And so we need to imagine an alternative ending where we are kept safe, where our dignity is restored. And we know that people experiencing this deep suffering are sometimes consoled by entering thoughts of vengeance, obviously, because they have no power whatsoever to get that vengeance. And so the fantasy is a consolation. I was going to put it up here, but it was taking too long. In Psalm 137, there's this psalm that everyone does not know what to do with because it's like the beautiful words of God. And at the end, it's like, and how blessed are they that do violent things to the babies of our oppressor. And it's in the Bible, and pastors are like skipping, we just skip it. But it's quite profound when you think that's exactly what a traumatized person needed, is space to imagine that. People who've been dehumanized and who have experienced erasure of any kind, collectively or individually, can feel comforted by the thought of a monster in intervening for them. And the thought of the complex trauma monster being slain by a rescuer, savior, liberator character is deeply healing. 
So check this out. In Ezekiel 29, promise that a monster scarier than the king is going to come. In the 10th year, in the 10th month, on the 12th day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, mortal or son of man. That's also the big phrase in Daniel. Set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all of Egypt and speak and say, thus says the Lord God, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The great dragon sprawling in the midst of its channels saying, my Nile is my own, I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws and I will make the fish of your channels stick to your scales and I will draw you up from your channels with all the fish of your channels sticking to your scales. I will fling you into the wilderness, you and all the fish of your channels. You shall fall in the open field and not be gathered or picked up to the animals of the earth and to the birds of the air I have given you as food. And so you have these fantasies of the trauma monster being conquered. And I think without realizing that that's what's happening in the Bible, we sometimes miss out. But when we do realize it, it's like just opens the door for transformation, right? It's like this changes everything. Eureka. We could be okay, you guys. So then guess what happens? The last part in Daniel 7. I'm going to read this and then I'm just going to reflect about the communion table and what's happening here. The next part in Daniel, so you have the four terrifying beasts. Who's the liberator that's going to come and get us out of the trauma loop? In the dream, it says, as I watched, the thrones were set in place, and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And from a traumatized, the, the inner child in me reads that, and I'm no longer like afraid of this scary, wrathful God. I'm like, yes, something's going to come for those monsters. The next part, it says, I watched then because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. This is a weird nightmare. And as I watched, the beast was put to death and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And as I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being. It's not a scarier monster. It's not a big monster. And it's not a god. I saw, this is the dream, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. And to him, the human, was given dominion and glory and kingships that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. Someone who does not launch me into a trauma loop. Someone who is not going to harm the people or force them to assimilate or tell stories about how monstrous they are. This human one, who will not make monsters out of anyone, and nor will he appear as a monster to anyone. To him, let's give all dominion, glory, and kingship, an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingship is one that will not be destroyed. And I love, I love, it reminds me, Rachel Held Evans once said, fairy tales are real, not because they teach us that dragons are real. Or fairy tales are true, not because they teach us that dragons are real, but because they teach us that dragons can be slain. Jesus knows apocalyptic literature. He knows it well. And Jesus knows the power of story. Jesus seems to be rescuing people from the stories they're trapped in and giving them back their humanity as if saying your sins are forgiven or your faith has healed you is a way of giving back your voice and saying, what's the real story? Tell it, we're listening. 
In Mark chapter 2, Jesus' favorite title for himself is son of man or human one, like this character here, that Jesus identifies with this character. And he heals a, a paralytic man in Mark 2 and says, so that you know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, get up and walk. In Luke 19, Jesus says, for the son of man came to seek out and save the lost. To get us out. So Jesus is the human one who sees us for what we are, human ones, not a monster. He doesn't think you're a worm. He doesn't think you're a monster. He thinks you're a human being. And you're not disgusting. No part of you is. And you're not bad. And, and of course, Jesus couldn't just say this. Jesus was born. Like, like, think about the story. He's born among animals. He lived out the story of Israel. He became the monster of Israel by rising up from the grave, rather monstrous if you think about it, naked and unashamed to offer us a new story, and to overcome the powers and principalities who, who seek to capture you in their story, in their dream, in their economic action plan, in their ideology, and in their own version of the good news. But Jesus does not become a monster to slay the monster. He becomes a lamb and says to all who've been dehumanized, the part of you that's not okay is the part of you that calls forth change. Go there. Feel speak. The apocalyptic way of telling story allows us space to consider that perhaps the monster isn't the person or even the event. Perhaps the monster, the real monster that terrorizes us all, is that feeling of being completely unsafe, of knowing that you are utterly alone, the feeling of knowing that you must go into hiding as a matter of survival, that you must become something else, and because you will never fully understand why or exactly or when you encountered this feeling and went into hiding, you might end up ruminating consciously and subconsciously and splitting and losing your ability to feel what's real. Which is apocalyptic literature. Pulls it out. This is what's real. And so... Um, that could lead to a lot of anxiety, maybe addiction, maybe numbness, maybe a struggle with impulse control unless you're masking or medicating. And this apocalyptic way of telling story actually allows us to sit back and see ourselves seeing ourselves as both a young child being terrorized by a monster and as the monster who, if found out and unleashed, would terrorize the innocent. And so we exist in that tension. It's hard to hear your neighbor's cries for love when you yourself struggle to believe that you are worthy of love. If you think that you're deep down a monster, dot, dot, dot. If you struggle to believe that you're worthy of love, or if you struggle to believe that anyone would respond to your call should you make an attempt at belief, how can you love the little child inside who's always asking for more fairy tales about dragons if you haven't yet learned to look with eyes of love upon the face of that which you fear, the face in the mirror? The gospel must be told from within the context of story because only in story can dragons be slain. Only story has the power to unveil the true face of shame. Leviathan, shame. Rahab, shame. Goliath, adversary. Beelzebub, whispering, cunning serpent, shame. And at the table, I pray that we could just look around and find ourselves in a garden. A green garden. With a tree of life at the center. And rivers of perpetual innocence. And I'm serious, let's not just believe it's a dream that we have to wake from in a few minutes to leave and return to our concrete lives out there. Let's not just say this is a beloved fairy tale in a made-up world. Let's not come up here and perform like actors wearing masks and costumes. 
But maybe as we come up, we could pause for long enough to hear the gardener whisper, who told you that you were naked? Who told you it was unsafe? Who told you that you must go into hiding, that you must become something that isn't real? Who put your sweetheart to sleep, my love? Who told you that the dream you're trapped in is the waking world? I feel God at the table says, I'm not in that world. God's not in that world. God, God says, um, that nothing dies in the world made of silver and gold and characters and costumes. There's no soil there. There's no gardens. Nothing is flourishing. Nothing's growing. And the good news is you're not in that world either. It was a dream. You're not in that world. You aren't made of gold or plastic or stone. Taste and see. Let the scales fall from your eyes, wake from the dream, and we can hear God say, I formed you from the soil, and I breathed life into your nostrils, and I gave my own body for you and my own blood for you. Become what you are, O human one. Speak to the concrete bones and say, live. Live, O bones. Come alive. Lazarus, come out. Remove your grave clothes. Who told you you were dead? Come wash in the river of life. At this table is the place of forgiveness. It's also the place of the trauma, of the, of the night he was betrayed. It's the night of the broken body. And from this place, the voice of God says, you are forgiven. You are released from your debt. Shame has been put to death. Every tear has been wiped away. The veil between heaven and earth has been torn. You are safe. You are safe. You are safe. You're not alone. You are not alone. You belong here. And this table might be set in the valley of the shadow of death. This table might be set in the den of the lions, in the shadow of the empire. But this is the garden in the graveyard in Jerusalem. And tonight at this table, we are the beloved creatures of the creaturely God who descended into shame and brought us back from the shadows. And so when we come up here, we are eating and drinking and telling a new story together. So I'm going to say a prayer. Let's pray. To the creator of life, whose life breath is in each of us here right now, I pray that you would help us to become aware of the stories that we tell ourselves about you, about ourselves, and about this world that we share. I pray that you would rescue us from the ways we're trapped in other people's stories. I pray that we would become a people who are okay with other people being wrong. <laughs> Rescue us from their stories about us. Rescue us from their stories about you. And I pray that we would come here and find ourselves as creatures, humans, beloved, frail, beloved. And as we feed one another and are fed by one another, I pray that you would shape within us a new story that we could tell from this place, a story that would feel like a story we'd want to be in. So open our mouths to speak the truth and open our ears to hear and soften our hearts to receive what you have for us in this place tonight. Amen. Awaken Church is located in McKinstis, specifically the neighborhood of Bonas. Most of us are settler descendants who have benefited from the legacy of colonialism and forced assimilation, which continues to harm the people of this land. We are committed to reckoning with our history and taking action towards reconciliation as envisioned by Indigenous leaders and knowledge keepers. 
Treaty 7 was signed not so long ago between the sovereign nation of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, the Sutina, and the Canadian government. We honour that at the heart of the treaty was a dream for a shared future, and we wholeheartedly believe in this dream. For information on who we are and how you can support the work of Awaken, check us out at awakenchurch.ca. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Awaken Bonus.